We're in John chapter 13 once again. We're in that famous section called by some people the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse. John 1 through 12 is about the incarnation and the life and ministry of our Lord. John 13 through 17, he's with his disciples. There's public ministry going on in the first 12 chapters, and then there's private ministry with his disciples, preparing them for his departure from the earth, his resurrection, his ascension, and then his current session at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we get to peek into this private room, uh, into a private meeting with the Lord of glory incarnate, uh, a day or so before his death, preparing our brothers and one non-brother, professing disciple, preparing them for his soon departure. So it would be a sad event in one sense. Uh, in another sense, it's a, a happy event of Jesus having loved his own He loved them to the end, John 13, verse 1. This is an act of love of our Lord to prepare his disciples for his soon departure. I want to read the first 20 chapters. We're going to be 20 verses. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11 today. And this is Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. I preached the first five verses a couple weeks ago. We'll look at verses 6 through 11, but let's put it in context. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Just wonderful. I love that. He loved them to the end. Even when Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. He still loved Peter. And supper being ended, being made, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. He's taking the posture of a servant now. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Oops. Most of us have read this, but if you know Peter well enough, you know this is probably not a good thing here. What's going to happen? Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, 
Now, part of me wants to say, Jesus said to him, can you just shut up? But, you know, he who is bathed, interesting, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Amen. Now, I want you to notice verses 4 and 5. Just This is my only portion of the sermon that's a review. Verses 4 and 5. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. If you remember two weeks ago, I quoted a contemporary Scottish Presbyterian theologian and used to be a pastor. I think he's retired now from the pastorate. Sinclair Ferguson, some of you know that name. Here's what he says. He says, clearly something deeper is going on here than Jesus merely removing dust and dirt. He is acting out a parable of the gospel, showing them by means of a dramatic sign, both who he is and what he has come to do. Here in the foot washing, he reveals both his person and his work, both his identity and the purpose of his ministry, unquote. So he says, this is not just physical foot washing. Is it physical foot washing? Yes, but that is a sign signifying something greater than foot washing, isn't it? And we'll see that as we work through even verses 6 through 11. So in this scene, two things are happening. Jesus acts, Jesus does something. And secondly, Jesus' actions, that which he does, are teaching tools. So he does something that we might learn something about who he is and what he has come to do. Jesus acts and his acts point to a greater act. His acts taking, uh, stepping from the supper, from the table, uh, taking his towel off, his garment off, his outer garment, putting a towel on, a servant's towel, going down, cleaning, coming up, 
ascend, I mean, going back to the table. You see what's happening there? There's, there's descent going on and there's ascent going on in this passage itself. What is the greatest descent and ascent that the world has ever uh, had happen in its sphere? The descent, the incarnation, and the ascent, the glorification, the saviors. All this is being signified by this servant of sinners. Here's another, another Scottish Presbyterian, this one from the 19th century, John Brown. Here he says this. He into whose hands the Father hath committed all things. He who came from God. He who is just about to return to God. He who is fully aware of all this in the guise of a servant washes the feet of men, sinful men, of publicans, collectors of taxes, and fishermen in this action there seems to be given, as it were, a miniature exhibition representative of the saving work of Christ. Thank you. I'm glad I have that old dead friend on my shelf. I agree with both these men. I think they're right. In the washing of the disciples' feet, there is something more going on than merely cleaning dirt between toes. Okay, I want to show you that in verses 6 through 11. So verses 6 through 11 contain a, a back and forth between our Lord and Peter. Um, one of the commentaries I read said, certainly Peter in some sense represents us. <laughs> so we could say this. It contains a back and forth between the Lord and us, or Peter, and a closing comment by the Apostle John. So we'll look at the, 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 the conversation going on here. First, notice in verse 6, our Lord approaches Peter. Then he came to Simon Peter, first part of verse 6. The word then seems to indicate Jesus had already washed the feet of at least one other disciple, some thinking out loud, say, was it Judas? He had already washed Judas's feet? We don't know. But it seems to suggest, and I think it does, that Peter was not the first disciple to have his feet washed by our Lord. Um, an old interpretation by Augustine, the North African theologian, the great North African theologian of the early centuries of the church, he said, no, Peter was the first to be washed. So what do you think subsequent interpreters that ended up being medieval Roman Catholics, what do you think they said? Same thing, why? Because of the primacy of Peter. You know, Peter was the first pope. I don't think so. And you don't get it certainly from this text. So how many he had washed already, we don't know. But that he had washed at least one other disciple's feet, we do know. Peter's watching this, okay? As far as we know, there's no conversation going on. The Lord of glory, he who was with God and was God and the creator of all things, who assumed our nature before he dies, the night before, goes down and washes the feet of his disciples. They're watching. And we have the privilege of kind of looking through the window. They didn't have glass back then. The hole in the wall 
whatever they called it. Notice secondly, in verse 6, Peter stops our Lord by addressing him with a startling question. Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Now, part of this, we want to say, that's a good question. Why are you doing this? Why are you washing my feet? Are you, it's emphatic, my feet washing? Commentators note that Peter's question gives emphatic force to what we call pronouns, you and my, literally, Lord, you, my wash the feet, you, my wash the feet. It's weird to put it literally because Greek has different word order, but you can kind of hear the emphasis, Lord. Now, that's the first thing Peter should have stopped and said, what am I saying? Lord, he should have stopped then, right? He's the Lord, you're not the Lord. Let him do what he's doing. There's got to be a reason for it. You know, later on in the Gospel of John, Lord, you know all things. Okay, so if he had the knowledge of what's going on here, that he had come from God, that he's going back to God, and he's, he knows as well he's going to die in other passages, especially in other Gospels. Clearly, he teaches them that. He's got to go to Jerusalem. He's got to suffer. He's got to be killed. He's got to be buried. And on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. Note third in verse 7, our Lord responds to Peter's question. Jesus answered and said to him, this is fascinating, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Okay, so I am performing actions, I'm doing something, I'm washing your feet. You don't get it. What should Peter have said then? Nothing, right? What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Now, some versions might say you will know after these things, which I think is actually better, after these things, after these events. He doesn't, we don't know what events he's talking about. Some people think, well, just let me wash all the feet of all the disciples, and then, boom, something will go off in your minds, and you guys will understand the full meaning of all this. I, I, don't, I don't think so. So this does not refer to one thing or one event that happens at one moment. I think it refers to a gradual unfolding of events, including the event before us. In other words, uh, we could say, Peter, calm down. The meaning of this event in your life, the washing of your feet and the washing of the other feet, my actions toward you and your comrades in washing your feet is something that is pregnant with meaning, the full meaning of which time with special revelation will give you what you need to understand it. Okay, that's me kind of paraphrasing what I think is going on here. Just slow down, Peter. I am enacting the gospel. I'm also setting an example for you. You need to watch and slowly but surely As you get more information, especially especially the endowment of the Spirit that's promised to them in this upper room, John 14 through 16, Pentecost, when you have full apostolic cognitive benefits from heaven, 
the special power of the Spirit, and the ability to interpret the acts and words of Jesus like nobody else except Jesus himself, then, then you'll understand what I'm doing here. You'll, you'll get the full picture then. So just hold your horses. What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Here's what one man says. In view of the later teaching in this section of the gospel, we may fairly infer that the primary reference is to the illumination of the Holy Spirit, which was necessary and which would be given them. John 14, John 15, John 16. So that Jesus' response should have caused Peter to calm down and watch and listen. Right? You would think so. Peter, hold your horses. You don't get it now. You'll get it later. Just let me continue my actions. He should have said, yes, Jesus. Yes, Lord, right? But but that didn't happen. Notice verse 8. Peter pushes back on our Lord's response to his question. Isn't that, that's a weird heading. Peter pushes back. A sinner pushes back on the Savior. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. In other words, no, Lord. You shall certainly not wash my feet. Now, just those two words together. No and Lord. Red light, right? That's not good. Peter, who is the Lord here? You know, if we were looking through one of those holes in the wall, I mean, and then Peter, come here. You just said no Lord. Come on. Who is the Lord here? You or Jesus? Again, Peter brushes aside what our Lord says. Instead of asking Lord, would you then teach us what this means right now? Or something like that. His reaction instead is, you know, very characteristic of Peter and very strong. Once again, there's something lost in the translation. You shall not is very emphatic. And the word never doesn't do justice to what Peter said. It's more like this. Never shall you wash my feet unto eternity. Some of you have probably heard the Greek word ionos or something like that. Uh, Paul uses it to refer to eternality or the eternal state. That's the word John uses here. It's the word Peter uses here. And that's the way at least one of the guys I read translate, more than one, translate it that way. Never unto eternity shall you wash my feet. No, Lord, you're not going to do this unto eternity. It's like, you know, you got to appreciate Peter's zeal. He's very zealous, right? As far as we know, he's the only apostle, that disciple that spoke up, at least the, in the recording we have. It's as if Peter didn't hear our Lord's words, however. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after these things. That's what Jesus said. Notice again in verse 8, our Lord responds to Peter's pushback. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
Now, this can't refer to mere foot washing alone, can it? Note our Lord did not say, if I do not wash your feet. Though it was true that Peter could not eat unless his feet were washed, that's a cultural thing, surely there is more to this, isn't it? It can't just be, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can't eat, Peter. Ha <laughs> ha. Listen to what one other person says. In the context, it must refer to the washing of the feet. Unless Peter submits to the feet washing, he may not eat with Jesus. But Jesus means more. A literal washing of the feet is not necessary before a man can be a Christian. The words point to a washing free from sin, which only Christ can give. Apart from this, a man will have no part in Christ. I think he's right, and it's going to become clear as we keep working through the passage. The words, if I do not wash you, certainly point beyond the physical feet of Peter and the disciples. I hope you can see that washing the disciples' feet signifies something other than and greater than cleaning the toes of others. This is a sign signifying something greater than the thing itself. I think this will be very clear by the time we get to verse 10, but we've got to go to verse 9 now. Peter responds to Jesus. Again, red flag, right? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Peter, okay? This is like, all right, good. But this is, this is you know, that language Paul uses, zeal without knowledge. And should he have the knowledge to button his lip at the time? Yes. Did he have the knowledge communicated to him by Jesus? Hey, what I'm doing now, you don't understand, but you'll get it later after certain other events. He had the knowledge that he should have just buttoned his lip, but he didn't. He was very zealous, but he didn't act appropriately with the knowledge that he possessed. Sound familiar? That's how all of you live. Of course, I always live up to the knowledge I possess, though. None of us do, right? So that's why some commentators said Peter kind of is a, a picture of the rest of us. He seems to realize there's more going on here than clean feet, right? Though he still thinks it is okay to require things of the Lord. See what he did there? Lord, not, not just my feet. Here's what you're going to do. Jesus, sit down. Let me tell you what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to do for me. You're going to clean all, the entirety of me. It's like, what I do, you don't understand now, but you will after these events. Be patient. Slow down. Learn from the Lord. Why are you taking the posture of the Lord over the Lord? Because that's what he's doing. One man says, convinced by Jesus' words, Peter will not do the thing by halves. Hands and head must be washed as well as feet. You know what he's doing here? He's questioning the wisdom of Jesus. Though we can appreciate his spirit here, it is very misdirected zeal. He is not allowing the Lord to do what the Lord wants to do. He keeps giving orders 
to the Lord. That's what he's doing here. It's like, it's funny, but it's not funny. One man puts it this way, Peter is reluctant to let Jesus do what he wants. He prefers to dictate the terms. Kind of sounds familiar. Sean just pointed at Sean. Here's verse 10. I think this, this gives the symbolism very clearly here. Jesus said to him, uh, by the way, he could have said to him, get behind me, Satan. Remember how he says that in Matthew 16? But who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for uh, uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. And then Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer unto death. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. God forbid it, Lord. That's what Peter said. And remember Jesus? Get behind me, Satan. He could have said the same thing here. He's always doing the same thing here. God forbid it, Lord. Don't do it the way you want to do it. Do it the way I want to do it. My way's better than your way. You know, so the response by Jesus in verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed, now watch the difference here. There are different words being used here. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. How can you be completely, completely clean if your feet are dirty? So there's more going on than just washing dirty feet here, right? And you are clean, but not all of you. So note first these words, bathed and wash. The word bathed can be understood this way. He who has been bathed is in the perpetual state of bathedness. I made that word up. He who has been bathed, whatever it means here, is in the perpetual state of bathedness. Let me read the verse again. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. So whether, whatever this being bathed means, it, is, it causes somebody to be in the category of completely cleaned, and yet with the ability to get soil on the feet. In other words, our Lord is saying bathed refers to an act in the past and it is broader and more involved than washing. If one has been bathed, he need not be rebathed because he's completely clean. But he does need to wash his feet. Now, what do these words signify? It sounds good, but what is it? He who has been renovated in the soul does not need that radical renovation to be repeated, but he does need periodic cleansing due to the daily blemishes of the Christian life. 
paw, something like that, right? A related word for bathed is used in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Listen to these words. And such were some of you, all those ugly, sinful categories that he had just listed in verse 10. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The same goes for Titus 3.5, a form of the same word is used here, but when the kindness, this is verse 4, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So to be bathed here signifies what we call regeneration. Great, Pastor. Regeneration. Four-syllable word. What in the world does that word mean? Good question, right? Listen to our... Oh, another, another Scottish Presbyterian from the 20th century, John Murray. What is regeneration? Here's what he says. There is a change that God effects in man, radical and reconstructive in its nature, called new birth, new creation, regeneration, renewal, a change that cannot be accounted for by anything that is in lower terms than the interposition of the almighty power of God. If somebody has had the interposition of the almighty power of God and the end of that interposition was the regeneration of one's soul, he doesn't need to be re-regenerated. The governing disposition, the character, the mind, and will are renewed. And so the person is now able to respond to the call of the gospel and enter into privileges and blessings of the divine vocation. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So our Lord here is saying that if one has been regenerated, cleansed from damning guilt, all that one needs is daily forgiveness of new sins, which are committed daily and more often than we actually realize. You say, well, that, that, He's just washing their feet. How'd you get all that from the text? The foot washing is a sign signifying something spiritual, something that he does for us. What does he do? He cancels all our guilt and he forgives us of remaining corruption. Here's what, oh, another 19th century person but a British Anglican Bishop Ryle says this, he that is pardoned and justified by me is entirely washed from all his sins and only needs the daily forgiveness of the daily defilement he contracts in traveling through a sinful world. By the way, both these are benefits of Christ. The the good things that he has done and earned for us and gives to us. Full and complete pardon from 
damnation-deserving guilt and the daily forgiveness of our subsequent sins. Finally, in verse 10, John, excuse me, John provides in verse 11 a comment upon the last words in verse 10. Notice those last words in verse 10. And you are clean, but not all of you. You have experienced the new birth. You must be born again, but not all of you. Life, new life, eternal life has been deposited into your souls, but not in all of your souls. Heaven, capital H, has effected, has wrought, has worked a great change inside of you that men cannot cause. But heaven hasn't done this to all of you. Then verse 11, for he knew, this is John's commentary, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Now I'll address that Judas as we work our way through the passage. So we have some contemplations here. Not sure how many I'll get through. There are a lot of things I think we can learn here. Um, If you've read J.C. Ryle, especially his expository thoughts on the Gospels, he'll just put a text up there and he'll say, we learn firstly, he learned that from me, by the way. We learn firstly, you know, we learn firstly here that the disciples of our Lord were bathed, that is, the true believers among them, were fully forgiven because of the soul-cleansing power of God that had come upon them, regenerating them, forgiving them, giving them access to all the benefits our Lord came to earn and give to poor needy sinners. We learn that in this passage. If the disciples of our Lord needed to be bathed, what about us? Saved. They needed to be born again. You say, well, what? why would they need that? They were by Jesus because they were sinners, because they had polluted souls that were unable to obey. And therefore, they were disobedient, violators of the law of God, and therefore guilty. But not only were they guilty, there was such pollution in them. They had so many internal problems. uh, They had big problems. Problems they could not solve themselves. And if that's true of them, certainly it's true of the rest of us. Peter and the others were sinners in need of salvation. Uh, In terms of being fallen and sinful, they were our brothers. They needed to be born again just like the rest of us. They were alienated from God due to their sins just like the rest of us. So if it's true of them, then it's got to be true of us as well. We need this thing Jesus pronounced to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born from above. No person goes from being a non-Christian to becoming a true Christian unless this from above thing comes down and in them and transforms them. 
The difference in your household or mine between a true believing child and an unbelieving child is not, well, we did better with this one than we did, we didn't do as well with this one. The difference is God, not you. Now, that doesn't give us license to just let our kids be however they want and stuff like that. But if you have a, if you have a child that has confessed faith in Christ and the root of the matter is in the child, the praise does not go to mom and dad, it goes to God. Because you must be born from above to see the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Jesus is reminding them of. You have eyes to see now because I gave them to you. Now you get specks in your eyes every single day and I'll clean them out as well. So we, we learn uh, tons of things about the great doctrine of regeneration and, and forgiveness of sins. And what was the song we were singing on the way here? There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood. You know that song? That's true. There's this God has worked through the, the, the human nature of the Son in that he assumed flesh and blood, and he shed blood for the remission of all of our sins. We learn a lot of stuff about Christian salvation and the mechanics of it by this sign, which is actually an act that's depicted for us in words. And the act depicted for us in words, is actually a sign signifying other acts depicted for us in words elsewhere in the Bible. Isn't that weird how that happens? A second contemplation, and I'll close with this. We learn here that Peter was fully forgiven of his sins, a born-again believer in Christ, a full participant in all the benefits of Christ, yet... Right? Yet, and I have in my notes, dot, dot, dot. Here's J.C. Ryle. Peter was impulsive, excitable, zealous, ardent, with more love than knowledge and more feeling than discernment. Remember zeal without knowledge? That's what's going on here. All the stuff we appreciate about Peter, on the one hand, we don't appreciate about Peter. Uh, on the other hand, depending on the context, you know, he does seem to be the one who opens his mouth for Jesus, to defend him, to announce who he is in his own presence with others hearing him. He does seem to be the one that goes on the front lines, you know. And But he also does some really, and says some really dumb things. While we can appreciate some things about Peter, other things about him should cause us to take heed to ourselves. We don't want to just throw darts at Peter. <laughs> Look at you, you dummy. I never do anything or say anything like that. I have perfect knowledge of the Christian faith, and I enact my life according to the knowledge I possess. I'm not like you, Peter. We don't want to be that way. Please don't be that way. Um, we're not here because we're good and have our lives all together. We're here because we're bad. We're messed up. We need help. 
So Peter is both a bad and a good example for us in this passage. Bad in that he talked too much when he should have listened. He should have watched. He should have contemplated. Good example in that he didn't think it appropriate that the Lord should perform such a menial task as washing his feet. Okay? Peter was interpreting the acts of God way too literally. The acts of our Lord way too literally. He needed to go to hermeneutics class. He had zeal, but without knowledge at this point. Both zeal and knowledge are good, but only when joined together, right? You see what happens with zeal disjoined from knowledge? You become a Peterite or Petrine or whatever the word is. Peterite. But we shouldn't be too hard on him. In one sense, and I think it's already happened, you've put yourself in his shoes, haven't you? He represents us. Peter was both a warm-hearted and a dull-minded Christian at the same time. You ever been like that? Warm-hearted, maybe even hot-hearted. Is that a word? It is now. And yet, dim-witted. You thought you knew something, you didn't. But you were fired up about it. You know that statement that Jesus says, what I do now... You don't get it. But after certain events, you'll get it. I mean, that, that has a contextual, you know, hedge around it. John 13, the events there in the upper room, the washing of their feet and all that stuff. But that's the application of a more general principle, right, for the rest of us. Have you ever gone through something in life and going, what in the world is this? I don't deserve this or something like that. And then catastrophe or whatever happens and you're in this dark, deep crevice of life and you just, all you know how to do is breathe and say help. And then, and then what happens? A few weeks later, a few months later, sometimes years, you look back and you go, Thank you, Lord. <laughs> you know, you don't get it now, but events transpire and gives you a bit more interpretive context to go, you know what? That thing I thought was so massive and so huge and so negative and so bad and so, you know, I, I didn't deserve it is actually part of the all things that God works together for good to those who love him. Here is J.C. Ryle again. Great zeal and love are perfectly consistent with great spiritual ignorance and dullness and great slowness to comprehend spiritual truth. When I first read that, I go, yes, I'm glad he said that because that's all, all the members of our church are like that except for me. 
Great zeal and love are perfectly consistent with great spiritual ignorance and dullness and great slowness to comprehend spiritual truth. You say, well, I am sometimes just really dull and slow to comprehend, to understand spiritual truths. Therefore, I must be lost. People think that way. Do you know more today than you knew five years ago as a Christian about the Christian faith? Especially if you're coming to hear me preach every week. I hope so. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, some of you have been walking with the Lord for 30, 40 years, maybe even longer. Do you know more now than you knew way back then? Did you know everything about the Christian faith back then that you know now? No. Were you therefore lost? No. Were you dull? That's J.C. Ryle's word. I, I'm not using that. I'm not calling you dull back then. Were you ignorant? You had enough knowledge to be saved, but couldn't defend it, you know, couldn't argue your way out of a paper bag. That doesn't mean you're lost. It means you're a new Christian. Uh, matter of fact, Peter's kind of like that here, right? He's a baby Christian. It's one reason why I think Scripture would have us as novices, as newbies, to do a lot of listening and less talking. But Peter was fully pardoned at the time, fully forgiven, no Condemning guilt aimed at him to be punished. Zip. Zero. Why? Because his Lord was going to assume that guilt. The just liability unto the punishment of divine damnation. He was fully forgiven. Did he need his feet washed? Well, physically, yes. In the culture, yes. Uh, spiritually, did he need daily forgiveness of sins? Yes. For those of us who are in the state of bathedness, do we need our feet washed by the Lord every day? Do we, do we need the blood of Jesus to get in only or once we're in as well? That's a rough paraphrase of somebody I read this week. We need the blood of Jesus to get in. I don't want to say and to stay in, but to, to, stay, to stay sane. Okay? So I think this is a great uh, acted parable of not only the descent, the incarnation, the service, the who became incarnate, the what he became incarnate for, service, but also the benefits that come to us, full justification, full pardon of all of our sins, and the daily cleansing of our feet by the good Savior, who loved them, having loved them, he loved them to the end. And he does the same for us as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that our sin, not in part, but the whole, 
is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Thank you for this um, section of John's gospel that teaches us so many things about so many essential truths of the Christian faith. The Son of God assumed our nature, assumed our duties, assumed our liabilities in order to bring us to God. It is by virtue of the work of Jesus for us that we have full pardon, full remission, full cleansing of all of our of all of our sins that would condemn us, make us guilty unto damnation. He bore that for us. And we have the great benefit as well of the constant forgiveness of our many sins on a daily basis. Cause our hearts to be inflamed with gratefulness and thankfulness for our Lord Jesus, what he's done for us, what he does for us, what he will do for us. And now, as well, help us to sing in response to this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.